Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So how do we historicize the current American malaise, the current perhaps decline or collapse of American civilization? Some people like to think of America as being in the 1930s and they raise the specter of fascism. But I've never really been convinced by that, particularly given the fact that America is an older and older society and ruled by a kind of gerontocracy, old people. Uh, the presidential election, for example, pits two 70-year-old white males against each other. One of the houses of Congress is controlled by an 80-year-old. So what other historical comparisons could we make to make sense of what's happening in America today? Harold James is one of America's leading historians. Uh, he holds, or he sits in, I'm not sure of the best language to describe this, uh, uh, a famous chair at Princeton University, uh, has written a number of interesting, important books about globalization. He's primarily an economic historian. Uh, and he just came out with what I thought was a very provocative piece about uh, what he titles late Soviet America. So rather than thinking of America as being fascist or neo-fascist, uh, he's thinking of America in 2020 as being akin to the dying days of the Soviet empire in the late 1980s. Uh, Harold, um, is that fair? Are, are you suggesting that in some ways to make sense of the current American malaise, we need to look at mid to late 80s Soviet Union? Well, it's great to be with you, Andrew. Um, I think, indeed, uh, the United States has always depended on historical parallels. And uh, for a long time, I think uh, the big parallel was the Roman Empire. And so people imagined the United States as a modern Rome. Um, and indeed, the makers of the Republic were really concerned with the lessons of the Roman Republic and about the degeneration of the Republic and the, the creation of the Roman Empire. And so I, I, I think the breakup of empires is a familiar story and people will always see the United States in that kind of mirror. Um, there are other empires. Uh, you know, often people will suggest uh, that the United States is replicating something that the British Empire went through. So the British Empire reached its apogee in the early 20th century and uh, then suffered this long period of decline. Um, uh, the, the Habsburg Empire, if you want to be more dramatic about it, I think it's, it's a more dramatic case of disintegration. And the Habsburg Empire is also a model for the disintegration of the Soviet Empire. So uh, you know, these empires uh, have, have periods of rise and periods of uh, fall. Um, the reason that I thought that the Soviet experience was particularly interesting was that th th there was a long feeling of stagnation. And I think we've also got that feeling in the United States that there's a, a relative loss of power. Um, uh, you're looking at uh, other countries that are growing more quickly, in particular the 
rivalry with China. Um, uh, but then there's some trigger that pushes the decline uh, in, in, a, in a different way. And the trigger in the, in, in the Soviet Union it was the nuclear accident. So in April 1986, the explosion in Chernobyl. And the way that the Soviet Union dealt with it and the Soviet authorities dealt with it uh, really discredited them fundamentally. And it, it was a, a, a terrible weight around the neck of this really reformist general secretary who was just beginning then to try to pull the Soviet uh, Union together. And uh, you know, I think if you look at it in an international comparison, um, the way in which the United States has dealt with the COVID crisis uh, has has been a, a relative failure. It looks more like like Brazil, uh, the United Kingdom. There are other countries that have dealt badly with COVID, um, but the United States response is uh, is is inadequate, and it's shown all kinds of fundamental uh, problems about the United States: the inequalities, the the racial tensions, the inadequate healthcare system, the inadequate housing. And so fundamentally issues that were always there um, suddenly come to the front uh, when you've got a pandemic like this. Yeah, so I certainly get the comparison between Chernobyl and, and COVID-19. I think that's, um, that's a very provocative argument. How, what about uh, if we step back a couple steps? What about the comparison in the sense that the Soviet Union by the late 80s was clearly um, mired in a, in a self-evident hypocrisy in terms of what it claimed to be versus what it was. Can the same now be true about America, that America claims to be this open, egalitarian place full of energy, and the reality is it's increasingly dominated by a, a, a tiny plutocracy uh, and ruled by a, a gerontocracy, uh, you mentioned the Habsburg Empire, which was also um, self-evidently fraudulent by the end of its days. Is, is America as, 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 as mired in self-evident hypocrisy as, as the Soviet Union in the 80s? It's, it's less open to opportunity uh, than it was uh, 40 or 50 years ago. There's, a, there's an enormous literature on that. Um, uh, so so we're, we're really, uh, in terms of the educational system, we're more and more restricted. Uh, we're giving less chances to fewer people. And uh, one, of the, one of the revolts is exactly against that lack of openness of, of the system. Harold, you teach uh, in the, the bosom of the establishment at Princeton University. Uh, what is happening there? We've had a number of shows about um, correction culture and the, 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 this new wave of political correctness that's going on in the university. Is the preoccupation with identity and identitarian politics itself within these establishment institutions that are breeding the new elite, are they themselves evidence of a of a, of a profound, deadly crisis of the American elite, of its establishment? Well, they're, I think, a reflection of the way in which people are questioning these institutions and asking whether they're really sufficiently open and they're, they're, they're doing enough. So um, there are, I think, two aspects of openness that are really crucial. Uh, one is to be open to all kinds of ideas, and that's the traditional idea of a university. 
at a university somewhere where ideas are tested and it's important to, to, to try out uh, different notions. Um, but the other uh, idea of a university is that it should be as widely accessible as possible. And uh, that's, I believe, where American universities are failing. And part of the debate of today is exactly driven by that latter phenomenon that the, the uh, US universities, but I, I think more generally, uh, universities are not, not doing very well. Um, uh, medical systems are not doing very well. There are really strong analogies between the health system in the United States and the higher education system. That um, they're very good at doing some things. And um, so, you know, at the top, uh, American hospitals are really right at the world leadership. Um, but they're, but they're not extending uh, themselves. They're not they're not opening themselves. And American universities. Are a bit like that, and what we've got to do now, I think, is to rethink how open they are to 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 a big community. So, is that is that akin to late Soviet Russia uh, in the eighties, where their top universities and their exclusive health system was actually pretty good, but the rest of the system had completely fallen to pieces? Right. I mean, I mean, absolutely. So. Uh, you know, really first-rate mathematicians, uh, you know, wonderful scientists, um, uh, great musicians, uh, uh, wonderful performances in the Bolshoi. You know, everything looks on the face of it very good, but it's a society that's become ossified and uh, is, 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 is not responding to change quickly enough. So it's a Potemkin society, to, to borrow the term from, uh, I think it was Peter the Great, his establishment of villages that looked good from the outside but didn't reflect any reality. Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, that there's always something of that, uh, that societies are not always exactly as they model themselves. In, in the United States, I think there's something else that is that it, it, it's really based on a very powerful idea uh, but a very old idea from the 18th century and the separation of powers um, is, is really beautiful conceptually. Uh, but, but then it comes under strain and uh, different bits of the separation look at each other. And uh, in particular, I think uh, we've got an issue about the politicization of the Supreme Court that you know, now the, 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 the sentiment is you need to get a president in order to do the nominations for the Supreme Court. Well, I, I want to talk about the, the ossified American political system, Howard. But before we get there, let's, let's go back to Princeton and to the elites that you're training. In your piece, you suggest that they're being channeled in the wrong direction. They're going to Wall Street, perhaps Silicon Valley, that you're not, not you personally, but universities like Princeton or Harvard or Yale, they're not producing real value in terms of society. Um, is that akin also in some ways to uh, late Soviet Russia? Well, uh, I mean, the story about what they're producing, they're producing all kinds of people and, uh, and very talented people. But um, uh, I, I think indeed it's, 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 it's correct that we've had in recent years an over-financialization of the United States. And so... Uh, careers in Wall Street have looked very attractive. I, I think that that's probably diminishing and uh, people are really going to rethink what they do um, after the corona crisis. Um, in, in, in that sense, this is a, a quite fundamental crisis and probably more fundamental uh, than the 
the financial crisis of a decade or so ago, the 2007-2008 financial crisis. In the 80s, in, in, in the Soviet Union, of course, the political system was, uh, was, was self-evidently ossified, paralyzed. What about the political system in this country? It claims to be democratic. It's self-evident in so many ways that it is isn't everything from um, the way in which the current president is uh, undermining democracy to, uh, to, 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 to the electoral system. Are there similarities there in the ossification of the political system between uh, the Soviet Union in the 1980s and America in 2020? It, it, it's, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think every political system wrestles with the question of how you get a long-term vision. Um, and one of the classical critiques of democracy has been that it's, it's short-sighted um, and uh, People think of their immediate interests, uh, they can recognize what their immediate interests are, but they, they find it difficult to think about longer term interests. Um, and in the 1930s, that was a big issue, a uh, big discussion in the wake of the Great Depression. And uh, President Roosevelt dealt with it by strengthening the executive. Um, and the executive at that moment did have a longer term vision. And, uh, Roosevelt was really capable of reconstructing something. And what we don't have at the moment is exactly that ability to project a long-term vision uh, that will captivate people's minds and, and energize them politically. Of course, in the Soviet Union, what eventually happened was a, a, a new, quote-unquote, new younger generation of leaders came along, uh, particularly Gorbachev, and the, and the figure who most epitomized the paralysis of the Soviet system uh, was Brezhnev. Today in America, we have several Brezhnev-like politicians, certainly Joe Biden, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and even Donald Trump. Is the fact that America is now essentially ruled by 70 or 80-year-olds who clearly are well past their sell-by date, is that also another reason to believe in this notion of a, a late Soviet America? Well, you make me think of the Emperor Francis Joseph uh, in the Habsburg Empire as well. Uh, you know, so this is the man who came with lots of energy in 1848 in the middle of the European revolutions as an 18-year-old. And he, he, he tried and he worked out new constitutional arrangements. But then by 1900 or by 1914, he's, 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 he's clearly uh, very old. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, at, at least for me, um, you know, that, that's part of the excitement that the vice presidential choice has generated, that uh, Kamala Harris is a bridge to a new generation. Um, and uh, just the recognition of that is, I think, an indication of the way in which the United States can be remade. Yeah, although even if Kamala Harris is, shall we say, Gorbachev, that doesn't necessarily... Uh speak optimistically about the future of the system, given it was Gorbachev who destroyed the Soviet Union. Don't we need profoundly different kinds of politicians, much younger than Harris, who is like Gorbachev, who is trying to play both sides of the game and perhaps ends up playing neither? Well, I, I would also be suspicious about uh, politicians who are very, very young. Um, you know, I, I remember in the 1990s going to uh, various international gatherings where there were the, the, the annual meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. 
uh, where there were uh, you had a little red badge if you were a minister or a central bank governor, and there was the, the, these uh, people who looked like teenagers walking around with these red badges, and uh, all from uh, ex-Soviet uh, areas um, from Central Europe. And some of them did very, very well, uh, but there was also a, a kind of inexperience there that was sometimes dangerous. So I think you know any any political society requires a balance between generations, but. In general, and that's true not just in the United States. Uh, it's, it's very true in Europe uh, that uh, there's a, a feeling that the old are too much in charge of things and uh, that uh, they're handing out in terms of also their voters um, uh, all kinds of largesse to older people and starving uh, younger people who could be a source of change. And the younger people... Uh, I'm in Europe at the moment, uh, the younger people are really having a terrible time and, uh, and, and they're the victims of a, of a series of uh, uh, bad policy mistakes. Yeah, I love your uh, comparison between Joe Biden and Franz Joseph. I think that's a, 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 um, something that only a Princeton professor like you, Harold, could come up with. Um, you are primarily an economic historian, and the core of your argument actually is about the future of the dollar. I'm not sure how much you write about the fate of the ruble um, in, in 1980s uh, Soviet Russia, uh, but you suggest that the dollar itself is extremely vulnerable within the international global system, and that that on its own could trigger a profound collapse of American strength, economic strength in the world, both internationally and domestically. Yes, I, I, the, 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 that I think has been on the cards for some time. Um, it, it's been widely discussed really for 50 years, uh, since, since the 1960s, uh, that the, the, the construction of an international financial system around a single national currency um, involves all kinds of peculiarities. And uh, in the past you saw when there was a flight to safety, it's always a flight to the US dollar. And what's interesting about the COVID crisis is that you don't see that anymore. And there are other, uh, there's, a, there's a surge of interest in Bitcoin, and the gold price is surging. Um, but in, indeed, yet another area, I think, where the uh, COVID crisis is, is pushing something that was already happening, uh, that we're going to get less and less of the national currencies and more and more alternative currencies, uh, so uh, uh, blockchain technologies uh, and private currencies. And you see that uh, really actually very, very strikingly in the, in the post-Soviet area, uh, area in, uh, in Central Asia. Um, uh, there's an enormous uh, interest in digital currencies because simply the state currencies are not, not so central, not so reliable. It would be, of course, very ironic, uh, sort of ironic in a, in a central or Eastern European sense, if um, America was ultimately brought down by blockchain currencies, which have mostly been developed and indeed even financed in Silicon Valley. Yes, indeed. Uh, but but uh, I, I think um, you know, that's, that's another area of the comparison uh, that, you know, in a sense, in the, in the 1980s, um, everybody looked at the Soviet-US comparison, and today everybody is looking at the China-US comparison. And there are some things uh, that, that, that that China is simply doing better and is is, is more advanced, and uh, artificial intelligence is one of those. So taking 
picking ideas, yes, many of them obviously uh, developed in Silicon Valley, uh, many of them developed in Europe as well, but uh, you know, taking ideas and then really implementing them and uh, that, that looking for the technological age is something that um, I think if the United States continues to ossify itself, uh, is, is also likely to become a liability. So you really think that the, the biggest challenge perhaps to the American preeminence, at least in the global, internet, uh, gl gl global financial system, are digital currencies uh, uh, like, uh, like Bitcoin? Yes, I mean, that's, that's certainly the way of the future and the, the digital currencies can be linked to information in a way that traditional currencies are not linked to information. So traditional currencies are linked to the capacity of states to tax. Um, new currencies are going to be linked to payment systems that base themselves on the ability to collect large amount of, of consumer data and uh, make themselves in that way more responsive. Fundamental reform, uh, a fundamental rethink, perhaps 2020 in the COVID crisis, ultimately in terms of its financial history, will go down as the, 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 the final glorious year in the history of the Federal Reserve, who have clearly, of, of all the institutions in America, have come out of this looking the least bad. Yes, I, I mean, that's, that's I think, um, uh, Part of the problem that um, you know, since the, the financial crisis um, a dozen or so years ago, um, people have relied on central banks too much, um, and central banks looked as if they were the way of stabilizing things, and they did a remarkably successful job. I think the um, the, the, the Federal Reserve did a very good job. Uh, the the uh, ECB. Um, had its difficulties because of the construction of the way that the euro was constructed. But fundamentally, uh, for a long, long time, um, you know, both in Europe and in the United States, policymakers relied on monetary policy. Um, now you're seeing a greater emphasis on fiscal policy. Uh, but again, uh, there, there are problems there. And uh, the Europeans, I think, are doing better on that than the United States uh, is, is doing at the moment. Well, Harold, I know you're working uh, uh, on a book about the language which, which we discuss globalization. I'm looking forward to that book. It, it may be out next year. Um, what are you reading in 2020 in this strange, hot summer? You're in southern Germany at the moment. Perhaps it's less hot than America, but it's still pretty warm. Uh, are there books which are helping you make sense of the world or books that are just keeping you amused or entertained or feeling that you're still human? Well, uh, if, you, if you ask uh, about that, I, I would really push an absolutely wonderful book uh, by Miklos Banfi. Um, a, uh, it's a trilogy, Transylvanian trilogy, and it's a story really of the ineffectiveness of the Habsburg elite. Uh, uh, but I, I've also been reading a quite wonderful book by uh, Karl Schlegel um, on the, the Soviet century. Uh, so it, it, it describes very, very neatly uh, the way in which the Soviet Union um, got ossified in the way that we've been discussing. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com 
where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.